Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the channel. My name is Rosemary Valenzuela Vicente, and I'm delighted to be sitting here and talking with Dr. Michael Bustamante about his first monograph, Cuban Memory Wars, Retrospective Politics and Revolution in Exile, which was published in March 2021 as part of the Envisioning Cuba series by the University of North Carolina Press. His book examines the various ways in which the struggle over historical memory was triangulated among revolutionary leaders in Havana, the exile community in Miami, and average Cuban citizens in the first two decades of the Cuban Revolution. He argues that Cubans' battle over the past not only defied simple political divisions, but that they also helped shape the course of Cuban history itself. Dr. Bustamante is the Bacardi Chair in Cuban and Cuban American Studies at the University of Miami and Associate Professor in the Department of History. He's also my mentor, which makes this conversation a special treat for me. Dr. Bustamante, welcome to the channel. Thanks, Rosemary. I, I appreciate the invitation. Awesome. Uh, before we dive into the book, which it's, it's a very meaty book, um, do you mind talking a little bit about the genesis of this project and how you landed on it and your, just your background in Cuban history in general? Sure. Um, I suppose I landed on this book not expecting to, but I wasn't surprised when I did, if that makes sense. I, I'm i Cuban-American, so I think like many of us who share that label or identity, you know, I certainly grew up with family members talking in a certain way about the Cuban past, although not as um, intensely or frequently, I think, as other, as other families. Um, so I had some sense of the way in which narratives of the past were deeply politicized for Cubans, but it really wasn't until college that I got seriously interested in Cuban history, first as a, a means to understand the history of U.S. foreign relations, and then as a history that I realized needed to be understood on its own terms from the inside out and not just the outside in, right? Not just as um, a, a, a target or recipient of U.S. policies or attention in one way or another. Um, but when I went to grad school with the idea that I wanted to continue working on Cuban history, which I had done through my undergrad years, I initially proposed a very different dissertation project. Initially, uh, I had been very influenced by Lu Perez's, um, you know, monumental study on becoming Cuban, on sort of the cultural history of U.S.-Cuban relations. And I had set out to write what I was thinking, you know, probably quite arrogantly at the time as sort of a complementary book to that, right, that would look at Cuba's enduring and equally complicated ties with its former colonizer, Spain, after 1902. I went to Cuba for a summer 
in the early years in grad school to do preliminary research on that project. And then I came back to the U.S. and in the process of trying to work on a dissertation proposal, I had been reading a lot of works in memory studies in Latin American, the Latin American historiography in preps for comps. And I realized that, you know, this is a topic that was right for exploration in the Cuban case. And so I wrote a whole new dissertation proposal on a different topic. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's what set me off to, uh, you know, first write the dissertation and then uh, eventually uh, write this book. How much of it do you think changed between dissertation and monograph? Obviously more research was done and multiple trips to the island were made. So how do you think that changed? It changed in a few pretty concrete ways. Um, I added a chapter to the book that wasn't there in the dissertation, um, which perhaps we can talk about. I, I, I took what was essentially a kind of a coda of my last chapter of the dissertation dealing with this moment in 1979 when Cuban exiles go back to the island for the first time um, and made that into its its own chapter. But I think the, pro- the project also evolved it became more condensed, you know, sort of even from the start of writing the dissertation. When I set out to write the dissertation, the proposal was ridiculously ambitious. Um, you know, I, I love ambition. I encourage it in my students. But but at some point, you know, you, you come up against reality. And in my case, you know, the proposal said I was going to write this book about the Cuban memory wars from 1959 to the present. And I very quickly realized that that scope was just... Uh, unfeasible in in all kinds of ways, and so I, I narrowed the chronological scope. You know, even in the in the step going from dissertation proposal to actual writing of the dissertation. So, um, in many respects, the scope of the book uh, compared to the dissertation is 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 very similar to the dissertation, except that I added uh, that chapter, as I said, and the introduction and the conclusion were really thoroughly rewritten to try to better reflect, I think, where we are currently in the Cuban memory wars. And, and the conclusion in particular is my attempt, you know, even though the bulk of the, the book focuses on the first 20 years of the, of the revolution in power and the first 20 years of the post-revolutionary exile community, the conclusion attempts to provide a kind of synthetic, admittedly, but hopefully persuasive account of the Cuban memory wars since then, uh, really up, up to the present when I was when I was writing the book. So that was definitely um, uh, the, the conclusion is a lot meatier than I would say it was in the, in the dissertation for sure. Right. And it makes sense that you stopped at 1979, because as you know, like 1980 was such a monumental year that I think kind of covering that alone would have been, you know, its own separate book. I think it would have been a very different kind of project. Yeah. Um, there was no perfect end to this story because the story of, you know, Cubans fighting over their past is ongoing. It, it, doesn't stop and start in, in convenient places, but it seemed to me that if there was a place to kind of insert a sort of artificial ending to at least the story that I was telling, 1979 was a was an interesting bookend because, you know, if 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 part of the story is a story about how Cubans at first are fighting over distinct versions of the revolution and where it comes from, and then how those struggles kind of evolve as some Cubans stay and other Cubans leave the island. You know, to end in 1979 when 100,000 Cuban exiles go back to the island and are suddenly, you know, bringing back to their homeland their memories of what it once was. And people on the island are confronting the memory of the family members and friends that had left. And that had sort of been written out of the history, um, the public version of, of the history in, in many ways to that point. It seemed like this moment of kind of re encounter, um, but it's not, 
you know, a neat, happy ending either, right? It, it, that, that moment provokes a lot of tension, tension that then contributes certainly to what happens in 1980, the Mario Boltlift and kind of a restarting of these cycles of, of exodus and, and again, you know, narrative fracture and, um, and dispute. So, um, so yeah, it, it was, it, it, it made sense to me as a place to end it. I, I hope it makes sense to readers as well. Absolutely. And, um, what were some of the challenges that you've had in writing a book on revolutionary Cuba? Like how did you navigate the politics on the Island and the politics in the archive? You know, I'm still navigating those things. I think we all, anyone who works on Cuban history does, and it's not unique to Cuban history either. Um, I think one of the challenges certainly that I face and that I talk about at some length in the introduction is kind of differences in the kinds of archival material that are easily at scholars' disposition. Um, uh when it comes to writing about revolutionary Cuba versus say the Cuban exile community for reasons that I can get into, you know, we're lucky to have um, in South Florida, not only in South Florida, but centrally in South Florida, fairly good archival trails of say um, organizational records from different Cuban exile political groups of different kinds over the 1960s and seventies that provided me really interesting windows into the memory politics in Cuban exile political culture, because these groups, they might have all shared an antipathy toward what the Cuban revolution became, but they did not at all agree on why the Cuban revolution had ended up going the way that it did or who was responsible, uh, let alone what was the vision of the past that was going to help support a new vision of a, of a kind of post-Castro future as they were uh, envisioning it. So these debates were just constant and you see them a in the Cuban exile press, which is another really rich source. Uh, but you also see them in these organizational records and kind of like correspondence files that I really uh, benefited from. And on the Island, it's simply difficult to get access to sort of commensurate kinds of materials. And so I had to try to get at memory politics in the, in the insular context, often through, different kinds of source bases. And so that I worry, frankly, makes for some unevenness in the book and the sort of kinds of analysis that I can offer, but it's a product of, of the archival limitations that are there. Um, you know, simply put in, in Cuba, it's difficult to get access to government documents. You know, after 1960, the, the state is an expanding entity that, um, really reaches into all corners of Cuban society and is the arbiter, right? Which is not to say that the state is a monolith or only thinks with one head, but um, it's it's difficult to get access to sort of debates that are happening inside the state, so to speak. Um, though, even in that case, you can still get at these things, you know, indirectly. In the early years of the revolution, yes, the, the what was the private press before the revolution was nationalized, confiscated, etc., but there were interesting publications that, at least in the early years, you know, say 1959 to 1965, represented kind of different currents of revolutionary politics and different came out of the traditions of different insurgent organizations that had fought against, against the Batista government and were fighting over sort of legacies uh, amongst themselves. And so that was really interesting. But then after 1965, those sources kind of 
um, thin out in a way and, and the state press becomes more monolithic. But still, you can read between the lines in the state press. You can trace the sort of evolution of how the state and state leaders, including Fidel Castro, are narrating the revolution's own history and that narrative change. You can look at cultural production on the island, which I do a, a, a good deal to understand the ways in which citizens are kind of being bombarded with evolving portraits of their own history. Um, so, so you, you know, I found I was still able to do the work, but it's 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 a it's a different kind of source base than I had available to me for the exile community. So, I, I think that navigating that was definitely one of the biggest challenges. Absolutely. And so in your introduction, you obviously like in your title, it's it's clear that your book deals exclusively with understanding how Cubans on and off the island understood their own past, their present and their future and how they battled over memories, ideas and meanings. So what were some of the theoretical or methodological frameworks that you drew on to help guide your analysis in the book? Particularly, I think I, I found really interesting your framing of, you know, retrospective politics, for example. Yeah, well, the, the the notion of retrospective politics comes from uh, a historical sociologist whose work I had started reading in grad school and who I admire a great deal named Jeffrey Olick, who's written uh, predominantly about memory politics in the context of post-World War II Germany. Uh, he was all, he's also been the editor and co-editor of a few interesting um you know, edited volumes and kind of compilations of theoretical texts on on memory and, and history. So I, I found myself gravitating to his work and his conceptualization of memory politics as something that's always active and in motion, right? The idea that memory politics is a set of claims that are constantly being made in the name of a nation's history or, or a community's history or, or, or memory. I think he also helped open my eyes to getting beyond, I think, what is sometimes a sort of obsession that different branches of scholarship or theory can have in terms of delimiting, de- delimiting what is history versus what is memory. I, I was less interested in that because I think, you know, hi- historical scholarship, particularly in a, in a context like revolutionary Cuba, where that scholarship is so public and plays an important role in uh, explaining to an audience, right, where um, the, the the political project that these historians themselves are identifying with, where it comes from, and historians who are increasingly working in state institutions, right? So, so history, academic history, does memory work, right? right? Um, uh, you know, individual stories. If we think of memory as a more personal uh, register, individual memories can be marshaled in the public sphere to serve collective purposes. So, there's all these kinds of ways in which these categories blur and overlap, and so. Thinking about memory wars or retrospective politics or memory politics as, as something that's always in motion, always active, and thinking of it as a verb more than a more than a sort of a static set of representations, like here's a statue and there's another statue and let's compare and contrast. Um, that's really what I got out of out of Jeffrey Olick's work. And it's also really what I got out of Steve Stern's monumental for me, you know, trilogy on on memory politics in Chile. Um, in the wake of the, the coup in 1973. So certainly um, some of his kind of conceptual armature to dealing with that, that subject is very, I found it to be very much akin with the way that Oleg and others were writing about memory and um, uh, uh, that, that proved, proved influential for me. And, and, in particular, particularly, you know, Steve Stern writes about, um, uh, the notion of, of remembrance is always 
selective and he frames memory politics in the Chilean case as a, a history of competing selective remembrances. And for me, that was um, a very useful uh, phrase and idea that really, you know, touched a nerve with me and, and, and spoke to the things I was seeing in the, in the Cuban source base in, in many ways. Certainly. And I think coming up with a framework that is organic and not static certainly fits in the Cuban sense because it is so evolving and it's so different and reactions to it are so, are so uh, wide. And I think that fits pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, it, it is, you know, on the other hand, I mean, I think one of the, pol- the, the paradoxes of memory politics in the Cuban case is that there are certain things that are unchanging, right? <laughs> there, there, there certainly there's a part of kind of, if you want to call it the Cuban, Cuban official right. history that, became consolidated pretty early on and really hasn't changed much, right? But then there are these moments where you see the narrative emphasis shift. Um, so it, it is both a story of, of, of continuity in kind of the baseline polarization, but, but also looking beneath that to understand that this is not just a story of, you know, revolutionaries in the island who think one thing happened versus exiles in Miami who think another thing happened. There's different quote unquote, or self-identified revolutionaries in Cuba, there's memory politics inside the island. There are memory politics and factions of all kinds inside the exile community, right? So part of the other task here was to really get beyond this very simplistic notion of Cuba as a nation simply divided in two by 1959. Um, it never was, not even sort of, if you just go by numbers of population, right? Um, and, and, and also understanding that the relationship, the memory politics on the island, the memory politics in exile, they're evolving in in relationship to one another because uh, you know if nothing else, many former revolutionaries, uh, many many revolutionaries of yesterday end up being the exiles of tomorrow, right? And so they bring their their own narratives and their own narratives evolve as they go through their own migration experience. So these stories are really you know interrelated and, and complex, and 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 that also is one of the things I wanted to try to highlight in the book. And I think that leads us pretty um, clearly into your first chapter where you pick up right at 1959, you know, after the triumph of the revolution. And you, you start us off by talking about how the Cuban revolution was framed as a climax of Cubans historical struggle. Can you tell us a little bit about that foundational myth and the various ways that the revolutionary epic was framed in discourse and in media on the Island? Sure. Um, I think, as I say in the book, Cuban history in many ways and in many corners at the time was seen as this kind of unfinished story, the story of a nation that at multiple points was sort of on the, the cusp of greatness and its, um, its most prized, the, you know, achieving its most prized desires of uh, independence, sovereignty, uh, economic prosperity, social justice, et cetera, only to have those things kind of taken away, right? To have the, the, the rug pulled out from under them, whether that's via an, an unwelcome U.S. military intervention in 1898 or via sort of U.S. interference in the revolution of 1933, or whether it's, you know, the promise of the 1940 constitution and the Cuba's democratic spring being undermined by corruption, or whether that's Batista's coup in 1952 and on and on and on, right? And so so it's, it's not that every single Cuban ascribed to, to this understanding of uh, their own history as a history of um, sort of destiny denied again and again. But that was certainly a very prominent strain in a kind of a nationalist political culture, um, irrespective of ideology in many ways. And that is certainly something that 
the, the Cuban revolution of the 1950s and, and into 1959 kind of inherits and makes its own and makes a claim that not just are they the inheritors of this tradition and that this revolution is going to be the revolution to end all <laughs> revolutions, right? This is going to be the moment when Cuba finally stops what the scholar Damian Fernandez has evocatively called the cycle of desire and disenchantment. Um, but of course, uh, you know, that, that presupposes a, a very unified understanding of what that revolution is supposed to be or, or become. And so part of the story that I tell in that chapter is not only about the power of this kind of messianic um, myth, the power of what the scholar Pilar Diaz Castañón has called uh, Cuba's subjunctive possibility, but also the ways in which that immediately kind of crashes on the shoals of factional politics, of different voices in Cuban society, in Cuban anti-Batista insurgent groups, in the Cuban uh, independent press at the time, immediately competing for sort of the, the, the bona fides to speak in the revolution's name and to say, to A, stake a claim that we all, you know, we did X in service of the revolution and we did more than, you know, you other people. And so therefore our ideas of where this revolution come from, it comes from and specifically what it's supposed to turn, what, what, what policies it's supposed to implement, right? That we have more historical legitimacy to make those claims. And so, you know, between 1959 and 1960, you see this getting hashed out in, in the Cuban press in really, really fascinating ways. Um, and that essentially is the story that that the, the the chapter the chapter tells. Yeah, and I found that I found that aspect really fascinating. This idea of like the public sphere, and I think part of what you work to do in the book is kind of undo this idea of like a like a you know a unified stance following the revolution. And you're showing these various factions that are still kind of present throughout. And so, can you talk a little bit more about how these debates kind of manifested in the press? Yeah, you know, one obvious example that will be familiar perhaps to, you know, the Cuban history buffs out there listening to this, but, um, you know, there has long been a debate among Cubans, it's, it's still, it still is ongoing today, about to what extent Cuba's historic Communist Party, as distinct from the Communist Part of Cuba that uh, that exists today, the, the historic Cuban Communist Party dates to the 1920s, but the, the debate has been to what extent did they really even contribute to the fall of Batista? Um, they were not uh, on the front lines of uh, Fidel Castro's insurrectionary strategy. Um, in fact, when Fidel Castro first attempted to launch um, his revolution in 1953 through the failed attack on the Moncada barracks, the Cuban Communist Party decried the attack as sort of the, uh, a, a putsch uh, by, by sort of bourgeois elements, right? So the relationship between the historic Cuban Communist Party and the and other sectors of the anti-Batista movement was not at all an easy one. And that also had to do with the fact that the historic Cuban Communist Party had this kind of unconvenient part of its own history, where in the late 1930s, they had established an alliance of convenience with a guy named Fulgencio Batista back during Fulgencio Batista's kind of first turn on the Cuban national political stage. Um, and so when all of the sudden... Uh, you know, after 1959, uh, the Communist Party is among those actors who are sort of claiming a space to be contributing to the definition of what this thing, the revolution is going to be. There are elements of the Fidel Castro's own 26th of July movement who are saying, hey, wait a second, you guys, A, didn't get on board with our insurrectionary strategy until very late in the game. And B, 
you are in part responsible for Batista's longevity in Cuban politics because of this alliance of convenience that you established with him back in the late 1930s. And the Cuban Communist Party, um, uh, known as the PSP at the time, you know, has very creative and detailed responses to that, right? They are in their newspaper, Noticias de Hoy, all throughout 1959 and 1960, making a case that even though we didn't sort of back an insurrectionary strategy until pretty late in the game, we did X, Y, Z in the name of the Antipatista movement in the 1950s. And here are the faces of our martyrs. So, you know, don't don't forget that we contributed too. So that's just one example of a kind of factional memory politics that is very present in the, in the Cuban press and, and really shapes the, 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 the evolving uh, Cuban revolutionary state. And these are, these are polemics that are so foundational that even after the revolutionary state is consolidated and those old party identifiers go away, and in theory, everyone is unified under first this thing called um, the Organizaciones Revolucionarias Integradas, and then uh, this thing called the United Party of the Cuban Socialist Revolution. And then finally, the new <laughs> sort of improved Cuban Communist Party in 1965. These are polemics that are just below the surface. And they have a, a funny way of popping up again, um, which is something that I, I show in later later chapters of the book. Right. And in, uh, in chapter two, you move us, right? You move, you move us over to Miami and you start kind of unraveling these very complicated politics that are evolving um, in the exile community the exile community in Miami. And so I was especially struck with your introduction of the kind of exile narrative of revolution betrayed. How did this narrative emerge? Yeah, the, the narrative that uh, a historical narrative of, um, of the revolution as something that had been betrayed is something that evolves really at the crux or at the intersection of a particular subset of Cubans' own experiences, but also U.S. national security interests. And, you know, it's just worth noting that this is not a book about the U.S.-Cuba conflict. This is a book about Cubans' arguments with themselves, right. <laughs> fundamentally. But those are deeply imbricated, of course, because it's unavoidable, with the evolving pattern of U.S.-Cuban relations and the ways in which, um, you know, Cubans that were in sympathy with the revolution, part of also what they wanted to achieve was getting the United States um, off of their backs, you know, to, to one degree or another. And so then when certain exiles find themselves in Miami and having to make alliances of convenience with the United States, um, you know, they are making difficult choices vis-a-vis -vis some of their own political uh, thoughts in the past that then expose them to the accusations of hypocrisy, et cetera, from, from Cubans on the island. But um, um, forgive, forgive that aside, um, but, but the revolution betrayed is a narrative that evolves at the at the intersection of an evolving U.S. policy approach to the Cuban Revolution and certain Cubans' own experiences, because on the one hand there are those Cubans, some of whom had been members of the 26th of July, for example, or early leaders in the revolutionary government in the years of 1959 and 1960, who feel that by 1960 the revolution is kind of going to a place where they never thought it would and and never thought it should, um, in terms of deferring um, any talk of uh, multi-party elections um, in terms of its radicalization of its, of its economic measures, et cetera. And so these are, you know, the, the, the argument that the revolution is betrayed is something that some Cubans are making themselves first from the island in, in the waning days of the, of the, you know, the, the independent press in Cuba in 1960, perhaps most famously the editor of Bohemia magazine, kind of Cuba's version of Newsweek, tries to publish a final column before he himself goes into exile 
Um, he doesn't make it into Bohemia, but it gets published in another newspaper at the time called Información, in which he basically argues that the revolution that he had done everything to support from the pages of Bohemia magazine uh, had been betrayed. Uh, but then in the in the, the South Florida or U.S. Cuban exile context, you also see that argument get picked up by folks in um, particularly the Kennedy administration, the early Kennedy administration, who are doing everything they can to distance themselves from what is the U.S. government's record of having supported Fulgencio Batista until very late in the game. So it is a deliberate U.S. strategy that in terms of who they're going to support, the horse that they're going to back, the horses that they're going to back in Miami, they are targeting those who had some connection to the revolution, right? They didn't want to support people who had been, uh, you know, backers of the Batista regime. They wanted to support people who had been part of the revolution in sympathy with it, but then decided that it went down a path that they didn't want. And so there's a, there's a very self-interested um, uh, calculus on the part of the, the, the U.S. government in that way that then certain exile political actors are trying to take advantage of to gain the resources and the funding that they need to uh, you know, support their own, their own ambitions. Um, but what's very interesting is that you know, this narrative of a revolution betrayed, I think, is very popular in the early years of the exile community, but it's not the only narrative around. And the people that are sort of supportive of this idea that a revolution, the revolution was betrayed, they, you know, it, it stands to reason that if they believed that, they also believed that some kind of a revolution was necessary, which butts up against other readings of the recent Cuban past, particularly among those who have been sympathizers of the Batista government, that in fact, what was left behind was a kind of a paradise lost, that, that no revolution at all was needed, that everything was fine, right? And so you see exiles arguing about that. Right. If, you know, whether a revolution was even necessary, um, you know, let alone whether it was it was betrayed. Um, and so, again, you know, the, the multiple levels of complexity here I could talk on and on about. But I think there you know, we we do a disservice to the history when we when we don't pay attention to them, because I think they they say a lot about the richness of, of Cuban political cultures on the island at all. Right. And you mentioned, you know, there's, there's various uh, figures that, that emerge. Um, one of the ones that you really kind of center on in this chapter is uh, Jose Miro Cardona. And uh, can you tell the listeners who aren't really familiar with who he was as a political figure, um, a little bit about him and how his kind of uh, trajectory provides us a window into understanding these broader political shifts within the exile community? Sure. Jose Miro Cardona was a fairly prominent lawyer. He was the head of the Havana Bar Association for a while. He had kind of made a name for himself in the 1950s, defending um, critics and activists against the Batista government um, for, for in a variety of cases. Uh, and he had been part of a kind of a loose civic support network, if you will, for the anti-Batista movement, particularly into the into the mid and, and late 1950s, uh, a moderate guy, right? Um, but somebody who is kind of in la sopa, as Cubans would say, in the soup of kind of political actors um, who are in the orbit of this thing called the revolution as it's taking shape. Although he's certainly not, you know, on the front lines of, of the Sierra Maestra or anything like that. Um, but when the revolution triumphs, uh, he is kind of the consensus candidate for being the first prime minister of this interim revolutionary government. He spends only a couple months in that post before that post uh, goes to Fidel Castro. He spends a few months as revolutionary Cuba's ambas uh, ambassador to Spain. 
Um, and eventually by uh, sort of mid-1960, he himself is disenchanted with what the revolution has become. He seeks exile or he seeks asylum um, in the Argentine embassy. I believe he makes his way to Buenos Aires from there. He gets safe passage out of the country. And from there, he is uh, you know, he makes his way to the United States, according to some accounts, with a certain uh, certain help from, from U.S. intelligence. Be- and precisely because he was the kind of person that U.S. interests were, uh, the kind of horse that U.S. interests were interested in backing in this early period. Uh, period of the of the revolution uh because he was somebody that had sympathized with the revolution been part of it but then felt that it had uh been betrayed and so he is cultivated as a leader for what would become the ostensibly the political leadership that was backing the bay of pigs invasion but was really uh you know a a, a front organization in a way that that had that had little teeth for for an operation that was really being run by by US intelligence as we as we know this organization called the Cuban Revolutionary Council, which in its own ranks included a lot of really interesting voices from the, the anti-Batista movement um, who had you know different points of view amongst themselves. And, and what I do with Miro Cardona, I mean, it's a good example going back to your source question. I mean, his personal files from his time in exile are at the University of Miami, and I had the chance to work with them. And his correspondence files are fascinating because you see in there you know, his own draft speeches from early years in the exile community. And he's kind of crafting what, what if there is going to be a narrative of the revolution betrayed, what's it going to look like? And at first, you know, he's fairly, call him progressive, if not radical. I mean, he is somebody who is clearly unhappy with the, the direction the revolution has gone, but, but believes that Cuba was desperately in need of a revolution and desperately in need of deep social and economic reform. And he says so, you know, and and he takes a lot of heat too in his early time in Miami from elements that were closer to the ousted Batista government, particularly because he had been prime minister in the first weeks of the Cuban revolution in power when there were revolutionary tribunals um, uh, set up that were put in charge of um, trying and often executing uh, members of the Batista government or police apparatus that were accused of being uh, of, of, of crimes um, and, and of acts of violence. Uh, these were trials that were plagued with accusations of not following due process. And so he takes a lot of heat for being complicit in that way, uh, according to some, uh, with some of the revolution's early abuses. But nonetheless, he is being backed by the United States um, for all the reasons that I that I mentioned, and yet on the shoals of the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which is a whole other story, you start to see him evolve. Right, he moves to the center and even to the center right. And and but you know by the late 1960s, he's arguing that in fact, you know, basically Cuba in the late 1950s had 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 reached its pinnacle of economic progress, and all that was really needed was a return to constitutional normalcy and not really much economic change, and that stands in stark contrast to what he had argued when he first showed up in Miami, right? Um, which, you know, obviously everyone has the right to have their opinion evolve. Um, but 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 his opinion is evolving in, in interesting ways that are shaping the memory culture of 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 the exile community. And and so he's a window into some of those, you know, reconciliations in a way, those memory reconciliations that happen even within certain factions in the early exile community over the course of the 1960s. Absolutely. And you just mentioned um, you know, the the elephant in the room 
the Bay of Pigs invasion. And in many ways, you could have written an entire book on just remembering through the Bay of Pigs invasion, but you focused mostly uh, your discussion of that to chapter three. So can you tell us a little bit about how the Bay of Pigs invasion, or Playa Giron, as uh, Cubans call it, uh, serve as a metaphor for the revolutionary narrative? Yeah, I mean, it's... In so many ways, everything is in the terminology, or, or a big part right. of the story is in the terminology. I mean, on the island, it's called Hidon, and, and the, you know, on the outside, it's called the Bay of Pigs invasion. You know, the term that you use tends to tip your right. hat as to sort of which yeah. camp you're, yeah. you're in, or, or or which or which political culture or memory culture you were you right. were raised in. Um, you know, I think what's what's interesting about the Bay of Pigs invasion from the point of view of memory politics is that. It was launched right on the eve of the Bay of Pigs invasion. People like Miro Cardona and other leaders of the political front, in theory, in charge of the invasion, they published this editorial in the New York Times, in which they say, you know, we were we were revolutionists who fought against the former government, and so we are going back to rescue a revolution that has been betrayed, right? Um, under this conceit that, you know, this is independent, that it's not supported by the United States, even though, you know, very quickly it would become obvious that that it was, and it was already pretty well known that that the US was backing this 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 kind of plan. Um, but that narrative that if you know if the if the if the invasion is in theory something that's designed to rescue a revolution that's been betrayed, immediately after the invasion fails, you see the revolutionary government start picking apart the membership of the invading brigade to point out contradictions between the membership and the narrative premise on which the invasion was based. And so they highlight the fact that, uh, and, and they highlight in these public interrogations that are uh, on you know, broadcast on national television, right? And the transcripts are published in the press and they're later published in books and they're fascinating, but they highlight, for example, oh, well, you know, if you came to rescue this revolution that was betrayed, you know, why are, you know, X number of the members of your invading brigade, former soldiers from Batista's army? Doesn't that, you know, they were on the wrong side of the revolution. Right. They, you know, they, so, so, so they point out these contradictions. And then, you know, but, but what's so interesting about these interrogations is that the, the, the members of uh, the defeated Brigade 2506, the XL invading force, they don't, it, they're, they're obviously, um, you know, in a, in a position of, of, of weakness here that, you know, in a, this is not simply a, a friendly chat, obviously, but they they push back at a number of moments in in the in the interrogations and they challenge their interlocutors who are journalists from the revolutionary state press at that point they they challenge them you know if if you know why didn't you hold elections right why didn't you hold elections when you were you promised that you had ha- that that you would and and especially if 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 Fidel would have won right so so they they even as sort of cuban government loyalists at that point are are throwing Kind of historical contradictions in the face of the defeated brigade members, um, uh, and one of which, of course, of those contradictions is the fact that they are so reliant on U.S. power and resources to supposedly uh, pursue a nationalist cause of rescuing the revolution. Right, and the same token, the members of the defeated brigade they 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 highlight historical contradictions to a revolutionary audience, and so what I found was interesting about that and what the chapter tries to do is not even really about just the competing memories of of the Bay of Pigs, right? It's about how the echoes of that though like what the Bay of Pigs revealed about some of that those memory wars 
um, and how those interrogations kind of brought that out, that those things end up echoing in different moments across the 1960s. Um, those interrogations show up as reference points in a number of really important Cuban works of art, uh, literature, and, and cinema. Um, and it is as if the Bay of Pigs also, for many revolutionary sympathizers, is this moment of kind of maximum power and, and radicalization. It is, you know, we defeated this U.S.-backed force, something that, you know, no one thought that folks from an island like ours could ever do. And yet, as the 1960s goes on and things economically and politically get very difficult in Cuba in many ways, there's a number of Cubans, writers and artists, or who I turn to in the chapter, who are reflecting back on the Bay of Pigs legacy with kind of more wary eyes, right? And are kind of complicating the official celebratory narrative of um, of what the invasion represented in order to, to ask difficult questions about their present. So that's the way in which, um, you know, I use the Bay of Pigs as a window, not only to understand the continued ripple effects of some of those early debates over what the revolution was and where it came from, but also how the Bay of Pigs continues to serve as a reference point for evaluating whether the revolution, um, you know, fulfilled its promise, right? And by the late 1960s, there's a number of folks who are saying that it hasn't. And what's interesting is that uh, there's a, a couple of cases, at least, of journalists who had been part of the, the kind of crew interrogating members of the Brigade 2506 who go into exile themselves, right? And, and, and so, so things kind of come full circle in that way. Yeah, which I found really fascinating. And honestly, the, you, you mentioned earlier that you were a little concerned about uh, the balance between the source bases that you use, but I think you kind of referring back to like how artists and writers and intellectuals were kind of reflecting on that narrative was actually really interesting and provided like a kind of fresh take on kind of the more traditional narratives that we get. Uh, well, I'm glad you thought so. <laughs> uh, the next chapter, you kind of move us into the 1970s, which I actually found this one, one of this was probably one of my favorite chapters, chapter four. Um, you move us into the 1970s, where I think for the first time, obviously, you kind of mentioned like, you know, evolving politics in the exile community. But this is really where you kind of realize that the exile community is not a monolith. There's various factions within it. And you begin by discussing the tensions among the contributors to the journal Areto and the student organization Aurobacion Abdala. And then you kind of talk about the 1970s as a period of anti-nostalgia. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how the emergence of these groups kind of came up? Yeah, so, the, so chapter four is not only about the 70s, it's also about young people. Um, and it's about, uh, it's a, there's a generational question there, acknowledging that the borderlines of you know where one generation starts and another stops are, are always difficult to determine. But suffice it to say, you know, by the late 1960s, early 70s, the revolutionary government doesn't appear to be going anywhere. Um, all of these uh, attempts over the 1960s of different Cuban exile groups to kind of establish unity pacts, they have all failed, uh, to, to be blunt. And these constant arguments that I deal with in, in chapter two keep coming back uh, again and again. Um, and so it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that in the 1970s, you see evidence of younger Cuban uh, Cubans in the United States, um, Cubans who say, you know, were kids to adolescents at the time when they left with their parents in their early 60s, or some came on their own, that who are now kind of coming of age, uh, or who have come of age in the late 60s and into the early 70s, and are starting to kind of try to grapple with this political and memory inheritance that they have of this thing called Cuba to learn about it themselves, 
to question, in some sense, inherited narratives about what happened in Cuba to try to make it their own. And the anti-nostalgia part that comes in is is they also are, um, you know, these are young people who have come of age witnessing things like the civil rights movement in the United States, or um, in some cases, Puerto Rican and black nationalism, or um, just other kinds of activist politics in the 1960s and 70s, and who are, because of that, I think they're thirsting for some kind of political participation themselves, and don't want to just be the inheritors of, of history. They want to make history, right? They want to, they want to create their own stamp on, on the history that they've inherited and that they've been taught to quote unquote remember. And so that involves a process of also reconsidering and questioning that history. So I deal in the chapter with two groups that are in some senses, polar opposites, and they were in fact enemies yeah. at the time. But as I argue, they have a lot in common. One group is like, which is a, a, a Cuban exile, anti-Castro sort of youth or student organization that's founded in 1968, though it's really gains prominence in the early 70s. The other is uh, more of an intellectual project called uh, called Revista Areito, and, and it's more about kind of the scene of young people who are kind of gravitating around that. Um, the, the Abdala people are fervently anti-Castro, right? But they are very critical of their parents' nostalgia for the kind of Cuba that once was, right? One of the things that happens over the 60s is that in the early 60s, if, if exiles are kind of fiercely arguing over revolution betrayed versus everything was fine before, over the 1960s, there is this kind of more general nostalgia that sets in, right? And some of the early polemics kind of go into the background. And the, the, the Abdana people are kind of bringing back up some of the polemics that people have forgot about. They're saying it doesn't make sense to just sell it, you know, wax nostalgic about this country that was. We have to understand that a revolution came from something. And it came from a political culture that was corrupt, that was not democratic, that that needed reform. And so Abdallah is really interesting because they they are virulently anti-communist. They are virulently to the point of violence at times, um uh anti-Castro. Um but they their 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 worldview, their imaginary is really kind of shaped by a sort of social democratic left. And it's also shaped by a moment where U.S. foreign policy toward Cuba has moved to detente, right? And from the Nixon administration on through Carter, the 70s are an era of kind of up and down certain attempts to negotiate between the United States and the, and the Cuban government. And so that that needs the members of Agrupación Abdala to kind of rediscover an anti-imperialist kind of canon in Cuban history, right? They critique their parents for ever having gotten in bed with the Americans in the first place. They, they, they call them out on that. They say that was a betrayal of the nationalist legacy that you were supposed to defend. So they have this very interesting, uh, which is not to say at times not contradictory, reading of the Cuban past where they are both anti-imperialist, but they're also anti-Castro, um, which may seem like a contradiction, but it is not. And they are in rivalry with this other group of, of young people who gravitate around this magazine called Areito who are in many ways shaped by very similar developments. They also kind of repudiate their parents' kind of static longings for a Cuba that was. They want to shape the Cuba that is now. But this is a group that has been more radicalized by, um, you know, the anti-Vietnam movement, Puerto Rican nationalism. They've come into contact with folks on the U.S. left who have gone to revolutionary Cuban solidarities in the late 1960s. And they begin to say, we need to, you know, interpret the revolution on its own terms. And we need to, to understand the revolution that is rather than the one that we're told that exists. And so they, 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 are, they are more heretical in the sense that they go down a path of willingness to accept 
uh, to critically analyze, and in some cases, and increasingly to, to overtly support the Cuban revolutionary government. And so they enter into tension with Abdallah over the course of the 70s in all kinds of ways. But again, they, 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 share, uh, they share a ton in common. And, and uh, what they share is this kind of generational uh, task of trying to um, you know, wrestle with this history that they've inherited and that they want to make their own. Yeah, and I, um, my impression from that chapter is that it seems to be more than just one or the other. It's not just a generational fracture. It's not just the fact that they're, you know, inheriting these kinds of disappointments of, you know, various attempts from previous generations of, uh, like, influencing politics on the island. It seems to be a combination with that kind of association with what they're kind of growing up around, like, you know, Vietnam, civil rights movement, that kind of thing. So it seems to be like this kind of coalition of influencing forces that, that seem to be driving both of them, obviously, through different strategies and through different means, but I think it's, it seems to be the same kind of general idea. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of forces at play. Um, you know, I mentioned that, that Abdallah, or, or I should say certain members of Abdallah flirt with mm-hmm. violence. Um, the 70s is a period where, uh, you know, a, a, a number of, of Cuban exile organizations that we could consider sort of being on the fringe, but are also responding negative to, negatively to that context of detente, who are accusing the U.S. government of having betrayed their cause and, and are also realizing, or, you know, to some extent that the United States is, is, is not going to support them, right? The United States is going to look after its own interests as it perceives them. Um, and so they need to do things on their own. And so that leads, that, that's the kind of ideological ferment that, that fuels um, you know, Cuban exile terrorism in the 1970s. Um, and, and to the extent that there is a nationalist kind of strain of that, you do see certain parts of Abdallah flirt with that at times. Um, and then they kind of distance themselves from it. But, but it's also interesting because when they're then criticized by folks like Araito for simply being part of this kind of trans-historical Cuban right, right, and espousing violence, I mean, the Abdallah people will throw historical arguments back in the Araito people's faces and they'll say, Wait a second, but you're so so you're you're supporting, um, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're 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 you support a government that used violence to take power, and now you're denying us the right to use violence to take power, right? Which is not a perfect argument insofar as the Cuban exile terrorists in the 1970s, you know, targeted civilians, um, in you know, but but nonetheless, it's it's not uh, it's not a simple argument, and it, and it and it has everything to do with again these just very deep, complicated legacies of what the revolution was, where it came from, and what it was about. So in the next chapter, it seems like it's almost unavoidable to write about memory and not discuss public works and commemoration activities. And you kind of talk about um, this commemorative surplus that occurs in the 1970s on the island. What, what does that entail? What, was that, what does that mean? Yeah, I... <sighs> When I started the the writing about the set the sort of memory politics in Cuba in the seventies was probably the hardest chapter uh, for me to write. It was the hardest research to do because the archival record there is thinnest. Um, I had to rely on state press, which is not a monolith, but if it ever sort of approached seeming monolithic, I would say it was in the nineteen seventies, a period known for Cuba's closer relationship to the Soviet Union. Um, a period of cultural and political orthodoxy compared to the 1960s, et cetera. But one of the things that I noticed, you know, sort of flipping through the pages of different state uh, publications of that era was just, you know, these like constant celebrations of anniversaries, um, anniversaries of different events in 
Cuban history going back to the late 19th century, in the revolutions on history since 1959, but also increasingly kind of anniversaries that are kind of um, reflect Cuba's insertion in sort of a Soviet cultural world or a more Sovietized uh, cultural world. Um, and, and that seemed to me an, an interesting point of departure uh, to think about, you know, what, what is happening with the kind of patterns of public commemoration here in the seventies that is perhaps unique because on the one hand, you know, the, the, the prominence and the preeminence of commemorative acts and of invoking historical examples, this is not new to revolutionary Cuba in the 1970s at all, right? You can go back to 1959 and, and they're, they're celebrating the revolution as the incarnation of the independence movement. And it's finally achieving its dreams, right? There's constant sort of acts of historical communion, there was a, a push to kind of establish new monuments was relatively slower across the 60s. It's not until the 70s until that really speeds up. But um, but there was something about this kind of ubiquity in the 70s that struck me as paradoxical because in the 1960s, and of course, decades are rough, you know, boundary lines. In the 1960s, if you could, I think, fairly say that many Cubans felt that they were not just you know, reflecting on history, that they were living the history that they were told to commemorate. In the 1970s, the revolution is in a different place, right? The fundamental transformation of Cuban society for good or ill, depending on your perspective, has has kind of happened. Um, this is not a period associated with kind of the voluntarism and experimentation and and, um, uh, and, and sort of radical utopias of, of the 1960s. It's a period of a certain amount of economic practicality um, tied to, again, a kind of cultural, political, and ideological orthodoxy. It's a period of comparative stability, economically, politically, compared to the 1960s. The revolutionary state is consolidated. It looks, it is assuming the, the more and more the institutional shape and, and kind of ideological form of governments from the Eastern Bloc, although you know, never a perfect mirror image either. And so in a way, like the revolution doesn't seem to be as immediately or viscerally at stake in the 1970s as it does, as it was in the 1960s, right? When the United States government was doing everything it could to topple it in a more aggressive way. And when the internal politics of what's happening in Cuba continue to be very, um, when, when there's more active resistance to the revolutionary state uh, inside Cuba compared to the 1970s. So that led me to start asking, you know, what's going on with this, this profusion of, of anniversaries? And it almost felt like state discourse was compensating for something, compensating for the kind of the lack of a felt of lived, lived history in the present. Um, and so I, I, I try to do a reading of state discourses of commemoration through that, with that question in mind. And in many respects, the, the, the analysis I think is exploratory um, or it's, it's suggestive um, because of the nature of the source base. But I think I asked some interesting questions there and do some readings of cultural products uh, against the grain from that period that, that allow us to, to kind of think about the, sh the changing shape of those commemorative discourses and how they might have kind of impacted Cubans who are living in a very different time in the 1970s compared to you know the decade prior. Yeah. Were there many differences, do you think, in the ways that the revolution kind of revised their origin story to suit the needs of this new generation? Yes. Um, one of the things that I talk about in that chapter 
and I don't know if this revision suited the needs of a new generation. I think it, it in many ways went, went, went against those needs, and I'll explain why. But, but you know, suffice it to say, and simplifying a great deal, intellectuals, politicians in revolutionary Cuba had kind of, if, you know, backtracking a bit, if, if certain Cuban exiles had argued that the revolution was betrayed when it went from what it was in 1959 to openly assuming a socialist orientation in 1961, other Cuban intellectuals had taken upon themselves to explain how that had happened and why it wasn't a betrayal and how the move from one to another wasn't, was a, an outgrowth of um, what had happened before. But they had argued, and Fidel Castro himself had echoed this in earlier years, that yes, in fact, when the revolution took power, it wasn't socialist in orientation and that there was a process of radicalization that happened at the intersection of class conflict in Cuba and conflict with the United States that pushed essentially Cubans to a higher level of consciousness, right? And, and to a, a, a great, a, an ideological purpose, uh, an ideological project of, of more radical purpose and, and, and dimensions. By the 1970s, you start to see um, edits to that, you know, in, in the words of Fidel Castro himself, you start seeing instances where he and others are, insinuating that, in fact, they were socialist all along, but they couldn't reveal it at first, right? And you also start seeing them emphasize less this idea that it was kind of the people in that crucible of class conflict and U.S.-Cuba conflict that kind of pushed the government along more than it was leaders who always had this in mind, bringing people. And so it's it's a very, uh, you know, for a time of um, pretty orthodox Marxism as state ideology in the 1970s, and you know, one thinks of that famous Marx adage, um, which I, I will probably butcher, but man makes history, but not in his own uh, circumstances, right, or, or something along those lines. It's as if the revolutionary government is arguing the opposite: that the revolution, uh, the revolution made history, and revolutionary leaders made history, right, uh, and and they're the ones who are who are driving it, right? They they are the protagonists, and the people are are following along, and so. It's it's a it's a narrative that you really see come out in the the first the documents that are produced by the first Congress of the Cuban Communist Party in nineteen uh, late nineteen seventy five that de-emphasizes popular participation in a weird way um, and so again in those sort of shifts of of even the, the the highest state leadership's own narrative of the revolution and where it came from and, and Fidel Castro's own you know ideological origins you see some interesting changes that I think reflect a certain amount of anxiety. Um, uh, that that is kind of below the surface, right? Which is how do you convince people to still believe in this project if 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 it's achieved ostensibly a lot of what it's set out to? Um, and you know what's the urgency there? How do you how do you convince a new generation too coming of age of Cuba in the 1970s? Just you know the parallel generations of the Adalistas and the Arito people in exile. How do you convince them to to really assume this history as their own? If if in fact you're telling them that all the great historical achievements have already come and gone, right? And and you have to just live up to the example of the people that came before you. There's no more history for you to make, or there's less history for you to make, right? Um, so all of those dynamics I think are at play in the political culture in the 1970s that I try to draw out by analyzing, you know, everything from Fidel Castro's speeches to um, some lesser known films uh, of the era. And it's, I find it super interesting that you, you know, when you first started talking about like how this changed from dissertation to monograph, how you mentioned that your final chapter was kind of something that you just decided to, to add on because you had focused on it in your conclusion in your dissertation, but you decided that it just deserved its, you know, its separate chapter. And I'm really glad you did because this is 
probably, I mean, I know I mentioned, I think it was chapter three, it was my favorite chapter, but this is probably my favorite, favorite chapter because it's just such an interesting moment in 1979 where all these Cuban exiles were allowed to visit the island. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what led to this moment and how these Cubans were received on the island? You mentioned specifically, and I made a note of this, uh, the response of disremembering, which is not the same as forgetting. So I do want you to kind of talk a little bit about what you mean by that, because I found that like absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you, you might have to remind me exactly where <laughs> the term appears. I don't have the page, you know, immediately in front of me. But um, in broad strokes, and this, again, I think is suggestive of the way that even when we try to write histories of Cuba from the inside out rather than the outside in, you have to contend with the U.S.-Cuba relationship. But in broad strokes, the, the ability of Cuban exiles to go back to visit their country in 1979 is a product of this moment of this, this era of detente that I mentioned before particularly under the Carter administration. The Carter administration prior to Obama was the U.S. presidency that did the most to try to normalize relations with, with Cuba. Um, they got rid of the travel ban. They opened the U.S. and Cuban interest sections, which were like quasi-embassies. So you had a sort of quasi-diplomatic relationship reestablished. Um, and, and there were a lot of secret negotiations that were happening uh, between the Carter administration and the Cuban government around a number of themes because Carter was... Um, also a human rights president. And so what the Carter administration was trying to negotiate with the Cubans was the release of uh, Cubans who, were, who had been in jail uh, for their participation in, in political activities against the government um, in, in prior years. Um, but, but it's also an era where Cuba's involved in Angola. It's a, another story, but suffice it to say that complicates things for the Carter administration. And at a certain point, this kind of secret back-channel negotiation or dialogue that's happening between the White House and the Cuban government stalls. And one of the things that had been on the table was this notion of family reunification um, through one way or another. And when that stalls, it's very interesting. In September of 1978, uh, the Cuban government, if Fidel Castro himself calls a press conference, they invite certain Cuban-American journalists, even to Havana, to, for, to attend the press conference. And they announced that they are going to um, convene uh, a process of dialogue, as they call it, between authorities of the Cuban government and, quote unquote, representatives of the Cuban community abroad. Even using that term, Cuban community abroad, was a kind of memory revision of how Cuban exiles had been talked about in revolutionary memory culture to that point when they were talking right. about and it. And I more, think that's right? what it you were referring to when I when I mentioned disremembering, because it is you you're, you were noting the shift between conceptualizing the visitors as comunitarios instead of gusanos, and that's I think what you were referring to there. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to to set up kind of like why seventy nine and these returns are so important, I do spend the first chunk of that chapter kind of backpedaling a little bit and just reflecting a bit on how how it was that people who left Cuba throughout the 1960s and into the early 1970s were subject to multiple forms of, of disremembering. And disremembering is not just forgetting, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a misrepresentation of what they were or what they were about, or at the very least a, um, a kind of skewing of that, right? And, and so by that, I mean the way in which people who left Cuba in the 1960s, you know, even people who had been former supported the revolutionary government in one way or another, were deemed gusanos or worms. They were deemed apatridas. They were deemed literally stateless. I mean, it, it was understood and it was in fact law in revolutionary Cuba that if you left, um, you would not be allowed back in. 
um, period. So you became a kind of non-person and, and that, that non-personhood, I think, shaped uh, obviously the relationship between the exile community and the island, but also the way that even the history of exiles or, or this, the history of this exodus was referenced when it was referenced in Cuban political uh, culture um, or artistic culture and, and, when, and when it was not. And more often than not, it was, it, w- it was not referenced. And yet over the course of the mid-70s, you had started to see some small cases of exiles kind of showing up again on the island shores in, in pretty exceptional ways. And the, the most prominent case I deal with there is the case of this organization called the Antonio Maceo Brigade, which is in some ways a kind of an outgrowth, or it's certainly a brother or a cousin of that Revista Areito scene, right? There's a, the, the, the Antonio Maceo Brigade is this group of young people who want to go see Cuba with their own eyes, revolutionary Cuba that is, they're often sympathetic with the revolution, despite being the sons and daughters of exiles. And they are welcomed back to a considerable amount of fanfare in uh, late 1977. Their trip is made into a film. It's this first sort of moment, though. It's, you know, as much as it serves a a propaganda purpose in a way for the Cuban government, right? You have these kids of exiles who are questioning the narrative that they've, that they've over, they've heard their whole lives. There's also on, in that film and in that trip, a lot of really interesting and uncomfortable encounters between you know, the memory cultures of the island and the, and the memories that these even radicalized exile kids are bringing with them. So you had those those precedents, um, but then against, there's also this back-channel dialogue that's happening with the Carter administration. And when that stalls, Castro convenes this press conference and says, we're going to have this dialogue in 1978 with this wider kind of selection of the Cuban community abroad that includes many members, it should be said, of that Antonio Maceo Brigade and and similar political currents like it, but also includes people who were more critical of the Cuban government, but at least felt that they had a responsibility or it was worth going to a meeting in Havana to talk to the Cuban government about things that they believed were in um, humanitarian interest, like the release of political prisoners and like the right of exiles in general to return to visit their families if they wanted to. the thing is that the, this dialogue is, uh, it, it's a very polemical thing in, in Cuban memory culture to this day. Uh, what what I've been able to gather is that really the terms of what eventually was established or agreed upon at this dialogue were in fact already kind of agreed upon between the Cuban and U.S. governments prior to that. And so the dialogue is this moment that is less about dialogue and more about the Cuban government creating a platform to announce commitments to do things that it had said it would do to the U.S. government prior and kind of try in, in sort of in making that announcement to say we're going to allow we're going to release these political prisoners and we're going to allow exiles to come back to kind of get that US Cuba negotiation uh, going again when it had when it had stalled right it presents them with a little bit of a fait accompli so that's the context out of which the 1979 visits emerge but they quickly take on a life of their own as i try to describe in the chapter and over the course of 1979 you know 100,000 exiles go back to visit the island, which is not a majority of the Cuban exile community by any means. There were a lot of people who were really strongly opposed to even going, but a hundred thousand is not, is not, not a small you know, number. It's <laughs> not, it's not a small number either. Right. And so these visits do have pretty significant. Yeah. Effects. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to kind of end the book, so to speak, and kind of this moment where history and memory is kind of encountering each other in a very sort of physical way that I think is really interesting and produces really interesting analysis in the book. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the one part of the book where I really leaned on oral right. history, um, and it, it was just fascinating to hear these stories and to talk to people who had either 
gone to visit Cuba at that time or had been in Cuba at that time or still in Cuba in some cases and remember when, you know, their long lost aunt came and and what that meant and, and the way that it broke down barriers. And, and I think exiles that went understood that the society they left behind was no longer just like this black box and certain parts of it could even seem normal. Um, just as on the, the, the receiving end, right? If you're a Cuban in 1970s Cuban, all of a sudden somebody comes back from, you know, the enemy um, and they're kind of normal and they bring you gifts and they bring you cool stuff. And, and, you know, they, they sort of counter the, the, the way that, that exiles and expatriates have been depicted in state media all prior to that point. Um, uh, which is not to say some of the encounters weren't difficult too. I mean, there, there, there are, you know, political divisions that get rehashed out when families re-meet, right. Um, uh, and people revisit those legacies that had torn them apart in the first place. And so, so the, the results of the visits are, I think, a really important, again, going back to what I said at the top of our conversation, it's a moment where I think the story I tell comes full circle, but it's certainly not not resolved. And there's still a lively debate as to, you know, to what extent the disruption that was provoked by these visits was enough to create unease in the Cuban population that would con- at the very least contribute to a new crisis a year later, which was the outbreak of what eventually became the Mariel Boatlift in 1980. Right. Obviously, that's that's a huge moment. Um, so moving into our, our final question, something that I find really interesting and I also find, I think, quite challenging is working on Cuba and a book on Cuba and Cuban memory while being in Miami, I find it really interesting. And obviously, you're, you're talking about it, you're writing about it, you're interviewing about this book in Miami as well as other places. But how or... or how can I put this? What lessons do you think um, would people be able to take away from reading your book? If you're, you know, a native of Miami, you have Cuban ancestry. I think, especially uh, because it is the Cuban community, it's it's so widely known for that. Um, what do you think are some of the takeaways from your book? Well, let me first just say that I think the challenges of, you know, thinking through this this history and these politics in Miami, they are complemented by very similar challenges to thinking through them on the island and. I was in a really fortunate position to try to do both and benefit from both. Um, you know, this this work would not have been possible. I also want to say, without a certain historical conjuncture in its own right, which is my research for this book, it, it predated that the, the big Obama opening to Cuba, quote unquote. But it 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 let it was in the period leading up to that, in which there was a moment of a certain amount of broadening of uh, public space and conversation in Cuba. I think also conversations in the diaspora had become more, more, more complicated, more rich. Um, some of that, you know, foundational polarization was was being challenged by other voices um, in, in ways that, that were interesting. And so I think the work that I do is a reflection of, of that climate, the climate in which in which I, I did the research. So I think I think the and, and I'll, I'll just say too, at like right now in 2021, on the heels of you know four years of the Trump administration kind of taking us back to a certain kind of U.S.-Cuba relationship um, on the heels of really historic protests in Cuba on July 11th. Um, you know, dis- the discourse has become very, very polarized again. Um, but I think even in a moment like now, I mean, my, my, my message, I guess, to Cuban Americans uh, is that our history is complicated and rich and is not just a story of a nation divided in two. And the Cuban exile story is not just one thing. The Cuban exile story is, is full of, you know, 
what what it is often said to be, right? And this is the kind of the memory narrative of exile that has triumphed over time, which is a rags to riches story. People who come with nothing work hard to rebuild their lives and, and their community and, and, and in many cases achieve, achieve success. Um, but it is also the struggle of people who are contending with heartache, who are contending with very difficult political arguments about what happened, why, and who's, who's at fault, <laughs> right? And that is just as much a part of the Cuban exile story as anything else. And to ignore that is to do our own historical memory of where, of our own community, a tremendous disservice. Um, so I, I encourage people to, to, to dig into that complexity. Um, it's not something to shy away from. The argumentative nature of the exile community is mirrored by the argumentative nature of, of Cubans on the island. Uh, and, and Cubans, I think, now more than ever are in need of space to really dissect and have deep conversations about some of these historical legacies that get us beyond simply, you know, an official narrative on the one hand and a kind of counter narrative on the other, right? It's, it's, it's richer than that. And the stakes for Cuba's future are, are, are going to be defined in part by, by I think, the, the complexity and the richness with which we Cubans and Cuban Americans are capable of defining new historical narratives. Um, and, you know, for me, one of my goals in this book, which ostensibly, or, or perhaps a, a utopian one in its own right, given that it's written in English and not in Spanish, is that I, I want to reshape, you know, the, the culture of, of, of historical memory among Cubans. The book is interventionist in that, in that regard, right? I want people to incorporate into their own historical memory of the Cuban experience or the Cuban American experience, some of these battles over historical memory themselves as, as a part of the history that we understand as our own, if that makes sense. Um, so that's, that's my higher level goal for this, that if enough Cubans and Cuban Americans read it, I, ho I hope they'll, I hope they'll, you know, walk away with, with that lesson in mind. Absolutely. And I think you do a, a wonderful job of forcing the reader, especially if they're Cuban or Cuban American to kind of um, come to terms with their assumptions and their, and their bias and, their own personal kind of trajectory and understanding that there's more like nuance and complexities behind all of this than what we intentionally understood and how that kind of is in very many ways, like generational and collective memory. And so it's just, it's forcing us. I mean, myself as like, obviously as a Cuban, I'm, I'm forced to kind of, and in a good way, it's not like I'm doing this in a terrible way. I'm forced to kind of um, re-examine my, my own history and my own assumptions. So I think that, that at the very least is something that you did very successfully in the book. Thank you. That's, 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 you know, the highest compliment I could, I could expect or hope for. So Absolutely. I appreciate that. And so um, obviously you just closed the book literally um, in March. Do you have any idea of what projects you plan to pursue next? Yeah. Um, well, sort of short term, I am co-editing with my, uh, University of Miami colleague Lilian Mansour, a special issue of the journal Anthurium that's dedicated to uh, the Marielle Boatlift. Um, last year, 2020, was the 40th anniversary of Marielle. Uh, the University of Miami uh, helped or held a, a series of webinars, as it turned out, because of the pandemic, um, on different aspects of, of the, the roots of Marielle and its, and its repercussions. And so we have a a journal issue that's going to be dedicated to that. So I'm going to be working on that. In terms of my own scholarship, um, you know, I I think one of the byproducts of the work I did for this book is, you know, in some of those exile correspondence files that I referenced, I found all kinds of letters that were being sent 
from Havana to Miami across the 1960s. And as somebody, you know, talking about questioning our own assumptions, I just never really grappled with the fact that that was even possible, right? Um, it, it just, you know, I think I knew that people still tried to stay in touch, you know, to some extent uh, in some cases, but th- th- this correspondence, right, that was going back and forth between Miami and Havana um, or all or all parts of the island, kind of crossing that metaphorical sugar curtain, dividing the United States from Cuba was really interesting to me. And so I am in the, I think, still early stages of thinking about a new project that looks at the Florida Strait less as a wall of division and more as one of exchange uh, between Cubans, um, albeit precarious and fraught exchanges. So the mail is part of that. I have a new article that's just out in the Journal of Latin American Cultural Studies that deals with exiles who sent, kind of figured out ways to send care packages to the island in the 1960s, despite you know, the difficulties involved and the politics of that. Um, I want to write an article about, you know, not packages, but old school snail mail, because some of the things I found in that regard are just really fascinating. And so from there, I'm going to, I'm going to think about developing the project further. Um, again, focusing on the Florida Straits as a space of, um, you know, exchange rather than simply one of division. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see if we'll see, we'll see if I get there. Yeah, that's all of that sounds really cool. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops. Uh, okay, so Dr. Wisamante, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, all bias aside, this is honestly a really beautifully written and carefully crafted book. Um, as a Cuban, a Cubanist, and obviously as your student, I'm very proud of the work that you produced, and I'm I'm happy to have finally seen all of that hard work kind of come to fruition. And yeah, I just think it's it's very timely given the current political situation as well, and forcing us to kind of come to terms with our own histories and our own assumptions. And I think it was a wonderful job. Thank you. That, that, that means a lot. And um, who better than you to have this conversation with? So I, I really appreciate the, the invitation. Uh, Dr. Guzmante's book, Cuban Memory Wars, Retrospective Politics and Revolution in Exile, is available for purchase from University of North Carolina Press, as well as other major book retailers. It's honestly a fantastic book. Everyone should check it out. Thank you guys for listening. Till the next time.